Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be discussing ophthalmology and common eye diseases. What happens to your eye as you age? What should you do as far as preventive care? What are some common diseases that affect the eye and vision? We'll be reviewing all of this with Dr. Brian Alder. Dr. Brian Alder is a fellowship-trained cornea, external disease, and refractive eye surgeon. He received his medical degree from Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, where he interned, then advanced to chief resident during residency. Dr. Alder published numerous articles and abstracts related to eye conditions and collaborated on cutting-edge corneal surgery research while at Duke. Dr. Alder did his corneal fellowship at Bascom Palmer Eye Institute, the University of Miami, recognized by U.S. News and World Report as the number one hospital for ophthalmology in the country. Dr. Alder is board certified by the American Board of Ophthalmology and a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Dr. Alder, thank you for joining us on this episode. Eye diseases and the eye are a curiosity for a number of people. Certainly everybody's familiar with an eye exam, but let's start with some basics. A lot of people What's the difference between an ophthalmologist and an optometrist? And go a little bit into your specialty and what that difference is and who should see who and when, and a little background would be great. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. So ophthalmologists and optometrists both provide eye care. Think of the difference similar to as you might think of a primary care physician or internist and maybe a, maybe a PA or a nurse practitioner with that so an ophthalmologist is someone who's gone to medical school, same with any other specialist in medicine, and then they've completed a residency in ophthalmology, which is an additional four years, and they treat medical problems of the eye as well as surgical conditions in the eye. And believe it or not, even though the eye is small, there are different subspecialists in ophthalmology. So some people specialize in just the back of the eye, the retina. Some people specialize in cornea problems. That's what I do. I'm a cornea specialist. Some people specialize in glaucoma. So ophthalmologists have completed medical school or are trained to deal with medical issues and surgical issues that come up in the eye. They can do eye exams as well. Now, optometrists provide a lot of eye care, important eye care. They go to optometry school, which I think is a four-year program. 
And then there can be a residency afterwards of one year where they can specialize in a few different, I think, aspects, as far as I understand it. I haven't gone through that path, so I'm not as familiar with it, but they don't do surgery. That's one of the big distinctions there is that optometrists don't do any surgery in the eye, but they can manage a whole lot of eye diseases as well. They can manage eye conditions like glaucoma and help with prescribing medicines and things of that nature. But when it requires surgery, then they would be referring uh, that patient to an ophthalmologist. So unless people have specific eye conditions, they're probably most familiar with seeing an optometrist or ophthalmologist for refraction, getting glasses, having their vision checked. If you just take a moment before we talk about some of the common eye diseases, what should be expected if somebody goes in to an ophthalmologist for an exam and history and physical, of course? Yeah, sure. There are a lot more optometrists just by number out there than ophthalmologists in the United States. So most people probably see optometrists for their basic eye exams, which is great. So when you go in for your eye exam, you're going to go and have a whole slew of tests taken over the course of the half hour or hour while you're there. Initially, of course, they'll take the history from each patient to find out what brings you in, whether it's just, oh, coming in for my regular check, no main issues, or if they have a particular complaint, they'll hone in on that. And then part of the exam includes checking, I call it the vital signs of the eye. You know, we have the vital signs of your body, the blood pressure, heart rate, pull, you know, temperature, all that stuff. But of the eyeball, it's very different. We check visual acuity, you read the chart, you know, the E all the way down to the small letters. The visual acuity is crucial. Checking the eye pressure, the intraocular pressure is crucial, one of the important vital signs of the eye. And then checking the pupils and how the pupils sort of respond and react is another important part of just those basic vital signs. And so those are checked initially. Part of that visual acuity check, you'll often have a refraction performed, and that's one of the people's most anxiety-inducing tests where you have to choose number one or number two. And a lot of patients who are very precise get a little, <laughs> but it's the same. What do I choose if it's the same? And so they get worked up about it. Don't worry about that sort of thing. If it's the same, that's helpful information. Tell them. And then you know that you're honing in on the correct refraction state. So a refraction is often part of that exam. And then after those basics are taken, you're going to get eye drops that will typically dilate your eyes takes about 20, 30 minutes for those eye drops to take effect. So at that point, there's often sitting around, bring a book, bring your phone. You get in for your actual eye examination portion. Everything else to that point has been more checked by technicians and staff in the office. And then the eye exam itself will be performed by the doctor, the optometrist or ophthalmologist. And that's also sometimes uncomfortable for people who are very light sensitive. And certainly if you've had your eyes dilated, it's even more uncomfortable because there's a very bright light that is shined on your eye and you sit there for the few minutes that it takes for the doctor to be able to examine the parts of the eye that they look at. And we kind of look at all the parts of the eye starting outside the eye, actually. We don't often think about it, but we look at your eyelids and see kind of how the eyelids sit. Are they a little droopy? Are they high? Are they low? Or is the anatomy of the eyelid appropriate? Is there inflammation in the eyelid? And then we kind of go from front eyelid all the way deep into the eye, cornea, anterior chamber, lens, retina, optic nerve, as deep as we can see, and check all the different crucial parts that we can visualize. One of the nice things that I was drawn to ophthalmology about is that you can essentially see most of the things you're trying to figure out what's wrong with. And what I mean by that is for cardiologists, you can't really see the heart. You can try to listen to it and get little clues as to what's going on. 
Same with your field urologist. Well, you can see the external urology, but internally there's a lot you can't see. For the eye, most of it's pretty visible. I can actually lay eyes on different parts and pieces. And if someone comes in with a complaint, I'm usually able to find the thing that's causing that specific complaint. So, you know, the children who see pediatricians, when would a pediatrician recommend somebody start eye exams? When do you recommend that people start eye exams? Or family docs? Yeah, yeah. So for children, the recommendation isn't that every child has to have an eye exam, in fact. They're pretty good in the United States screening programs at the school level where kids are kind of screened out for vision tests. For kids, it's particularly important to find we call lazy eyes as early as we can find that because it's a condition for which there's good treatment if found early. Diagnosis is delayed and there's no treatment initiated early on. There's actually no great treatment. And so for children, we don't actually say every child should get an eye exam, but if there's any sign of a weak eye and they maybe fail one of those vision screening tests or your parents, if the parent notices that their child, that's what happened to my daughter. She was five years old and she was watching TV and kept scooting closer. And I said, no, no, scoot back, Mackenzie. And well, I can't see. I said, what are you talking about? You can't see. And I was in ophthalmology mode. I was in residency and I sat there and I tested her eyes. And sure enough, she had some blurrier vision than I would have expected. And so got her in and she just needed glasses. If you see any signs of blurry vision in a kid, you want to get them in and get them checked pretty promptly. After that, aside from that, for adults, a lot of the eye conditions that are more problematic are associated with age. So cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration, those are sort of the big three. And those all have a very strong uh, correlation with age. So risk goes up as age goes up. And so it's not necessary that every 30-year-old go get an annual eye exam. It's just not that important or necessary for that age. But as you start to hit, there is not a consensus age from the American Academy of Ophthalmology that says this is the age at which everybody should go and get eye exams. But I tell patients as you start approaching 60 or so, start thinking about more regular eye exams, maybe even 50s. If you're having any eye problems, certainly whenever you have the eye problem, that obviously would bring you in to see somebody sooner. And for general refraction, say, you know, somebody's in their 30s or 20s, and how would they recognize that maybe they should go in and get checked as far as their vision acuity? Yeah, good question. So if you start to notice that you're not seeing maybe the street signs as well as you used to when driving or the closed caption on TV, if you ever watch TV with closed caption, those are some signs that, gosh, I used to see that. I got to be a lot closer to those things now. That should get you right in to see someone. A lot of times I see patients around the age of 40 because that's the age at which for many people who never needed glasses when they were younger, they start to develop that really annoying thing the eye does as it ages of inability to see up close. We call that presbyopia. And that's not a disease. It's not a problem or a sign of a serious progressive issue in the eye. It's just the normal aging of the eye. And so a lot of patients who've never needed glasses for driving or for reading for their whole lives hit about 40 or maybe 45 and they start to gosh, can't quite see their phone as well or menus in a dark restaurant. They got to hold their arm back about two feet to see things. And so a lot of times that's what, wait a minute, I can't see. So people can get concerned it's a disease and they come in and that's great. Come in for the eye check at that point and see how things look. And if there's nothing else going on, we'll just reassure you. Unfortunately, this is one of the just problems of the eye getting a little older, no problems, no dangers, just annoying. It's in physics where I was 
usually sitting at the very top row and everybody was taking notes and I was going, what are you writing? <laughs> Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was there my first go. clue, right? <laughs> That's a good clue right there. If you're in school and can't see the board when everybody else seems to see it, yeah, absolutely get in. A lot of people, if you're going to get a driver's license, will have that obligatory vision check at the DMV at the age of whatever, 16 or 17. And so we have a lot of screened out at that point. I couldn't pass the DMV test. And we look, well, you just need some glasses. Yeah, nice. And so when we look at some of the common diseases that you deal with. Let's start with cataracts. Yeah, that's a good one. So cataracts are probably the most common disease uh, that causes blurry vision. As we get older, it's certainly the most common reversible cause of blurry vision in the world. And it's one of the most common surgeries that's performed in the United States, the most common surgery performed in the United States. So a cataract, just a quick anatomy brief for the eye has got the outside of the eye is the cornea. It's sort of the window through which light passes on its way to the back of the eye, the retina. And as light passes, if you remember those physics lessons, it has to bend at different places to focus properly. It bends at the cornea, but it also bends through a lens. We all have a lens inside of our eyes. We're born with them. And for the huge majority of people, those lenses are nice and clear. When we're infants and kids and teenagers and young adults, it's nice and clear and the light can pass through it be bent appropriately and deliver good vision. But, you know, the age can vary, but 50, 60, 65, 70, the lens itself starts to develop a little bit of some opacity, some haziness, some cloudiness. When I look, it looks like a little yellowish browning of the lens. And that's a cataract. So cataracts start in that age range, 45, 50, 55, 60. At the initial onset, they usually don't cause many symptoms or you don't notice them. You're still seeing 2020 for the most part as they start, but I'll often take a look at an eye and say, oh, you got the start of cataracts, even though someone has very good vision still. That's not the sign that anything needs to be done yet. In fact, it's not necessary to deal with cataracts until they start to impair vision. And that process of a cataract growing and becoming more symptomatic also can vary by person. Sometimes it's a fast process, but that's quite rare. For the most part, it's a very slow and insidious process that you don't hardly notice, you know, over years, 5, 10, 15 years. I have so many patients who I come in, they come in, I mean, and maybe they're mid-70s and I say, oh, looks like your cataract's ripe. And they say, well, doc, I've been waiting for 15 years when they first told me about that. So it's one of these deals where they can just slowly move along. And so when it starts to actively bother you and cause the main symptoms that the cataract causes, usually time to deal with it. And the biggest one is blurry vision. You just can't, like we said before, see the things you used to see as well. Uh, street signs is a good example of that. Even when you put on your reading glasses, you can't read very well anymore. You can't see the television, the details very well anymore. Just the inability to see clearly. Even with a lot of times you go in and say, I just need new glasses, doc. And you get them and you're still not seeing that well. That's a good sign that maybe it's not the glasses at that point. Another pretty common symptom that's a little different than just blurry vision is other visual disturbances. And classically, lights and headlights at nighttime, they can cause a whole lot of distortion in your vision. They can cause glare symptoms where it feels like it's a big floodlight when it's just a headlight, or they can cause sort of starburst sensation in your vision, and they can be very distracting of being able to see clearly. So that's another pretty common cataract symptom. Importantly, I think you think about what cataracts don't cause. 
They don't cause floaters. A lot of people come in and say, oh, I've got this floater dock. Is it my cataract? No, cataracts do not cause floaters. Cataracts don't cause any physical discomfort, no symptoms of that nature from a cataract. And importantly, cataracts don't fluctuate. So a lot of patients say, well, my vision's you know, sometimes good and then sometimes bad. My cataract needs to come out. Well, that's usually not a cataract. Cataract just slowly gets worse. It doesn't get better and worse and over the course of days or hours or weeks even. So a slow, progressive decrease in your vision is the main thing we're dealing with there. And when you look at prevention, are there some things that will hasten the development of a cataract radiation, for instance? There are a couple of other factors that could lead to faster cataract formation, trauma, anytime in your life. So I've got patients, oh, I had a black eye when I was a teenager, and they've got a big cataract on that side. Years later, it came on faster than the other side, for instance. Certain medications can hasten the onset of a cataract. Oral steroids are one of the classic culprits for patients who have other conditions in the body, if it's autoimmune disorders or breathing disorders, asthma, COPD. If patients have to be on oral steroids, then that can bring a cataract on at a faster rate and at a younger age than otherwise it would have. And then, like you said, UV exposure. So absolutely, UV exposure is associated with faster onset of cataracts. And so that's one of the reasons why my doctors kind of harp on wearing UV blocking sunglasses outside, especially if you live in a sunny area. I'm in the Las Vegas area and boy, we've got sun like 320 days a year or something crazy. And so probably more than that, probably 340 days a year. And I always tell patients, got to wear your sunglasses outside to protect your eyeballs from faster cataract and a whole other slew of conditions that can come on with UV exposure. And so certainly sunglasses is a good way to prevent it. You know, don't have trauma. (laughs) It's harder to do that, but don't have trauma is a good way. It's hard to avoid those if they're necessary for other issues. There are no clear eye drops that prevent a cataract from coming on. There's no clear evidence of any multivitamins playing a big role in preventing the onset of a cataract. The idea that a lot of people throw out is, well, maybe an antioxidant, if it's an aging process, that seems to help a lot of aging processes, and could that help? And there's no clear trial data that shows benefit of any of that for cataract formation, but they're still looking and there's a possibility there could be something in the future that's found to help with that. But right now, nothing's out there. And when cataracts reach a stage that it's deemed needs to be treated, there is a treatment. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the good thing about cataracts. Even if it's the most common, it's also one of the most treatable. Cataract surgery these days is sat fast and safe and relatively easy for the patient to go through and for the surgeon to perform. It's about a 10 minute or so operation outpatient almost always. You're usually at a surgery center for an hour or two and go home. You're back on your feet the next day. You're often driving the next day. Vision can recover at different rates. I tell patients that most people are seeing better the next day, maybe two thirds, but that leaves about a third who are blurry still, or sometimes more blurry than before the surgery, just depends on the anatomy of the eye, how it's healing, how much inflammation's in the eye, et cetera. But almost everybody is seeing better at that point. And so it's a very effective way to treat your cataracts. And if it's time to deal with it, I A lot of people are anxious because it's a surgery in the eye, and that's a reasonable thing to be anxious about. A lot of anxiety induced by thinking about that, but it's an easy one to heal from, pain-free through the process, and the improvement that folks see from cataract surgery is often very evident. It's a procedure that's 
very effective. It's, it's not one where we say, gosh, this might help. We can confidently say this is going to help your vision when it's done at the right time. If you're having it out too soon, you may not notice much of a difference if you don't have symptoms. What are we dealing with at that point? But when they're ripe and causing blurry vision, then it's a good procedure to help improve that problem. And there's lenses that have evolved. The lens technology is amazing. If you just want to go into that for a second. A few things to think about with cataract surgery these days, the technologies that have developed that are helpful to think about. So during the surgery, your cataract cloudy lens is removed and a new lens implant is put into the eye. That's the surgery in a nutshell. The lens technology that's available today is very, very different than it was even 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. So these days there are options for lenses where you can not need glasses anymore at all for most eyes. You know, that's a very nice thought for people who have been dependent on at least distance or reading glasses for much of their uh, recent years at the time of cataract surgery. These lenses are called multifocal lenses or a very similar type of lens, extended depth of focus lens. Both of those lenses are never covered by insurance, and there's a significant cost. So for many patients, it's just too expensive to be able to afford those. And I counsel patients, it's not that they deliver better vision. That's not the case. The standard lens that is totally covered by insurance gives you very, very good vision as well. Uh, but you just are more dependent on glasses to get that vision. Okay, so the standard lens is a great option. And in fact, to be frank, the multifocal lens isn't a perfect lens. There, while it gives you depth of focus, it sacrifices a little bit on the quality of vision. And so, you know, our technology is good, but it's not perfect, to be frank. And so I like to make sure patients understand the potential limitations of some of those lens options before they jump into it. One of those limitations for the multifocal is that nighttime, they might still get a little halo over lights. That happens in up to 20% of patients with those lenses. And so it's something that people should be aware of, but the convenience of being out of reading glasses and distance glasses for people who decide to do that outweigh that potential of a little bit of decreased of quality of vision. So lens options are very nice. That's one thing to certainly think about. One other thing, and I don't know if you've heard much about this, Rich, but the cataract surgery about 10 years ago, maybe a little more, laser was developed that could help with part of cataract surgery. It's called the femto second laser that was already used for performing LASIK operations. And so a lot of patients come to me, they hear about this from friends, and I'll just tell you kind of what I tell folks. It's uh, when it came out 10 or so years ago, there was a lot of excitement about it because, boy, this is going to be more precise, which it is. And this is going to be deliver more better visual acuities after surgery, more safe operations, et cetera, et cetera. Well, there is extra precision on some parts of the surgery delivered by this laser, but there have been a whole ton of studies now over the last 10 years, and there is no difference in outcomes if someone has this laser performed with their surgery or not. And the downside of the laser is the cost. It's one that your ophthalmologist doesn't pay for himself or herself. You get to pay for it yourself. And it's usually, you know, $1,000 or $2,000. And I tell patients just, I think there's a great benefit for it, frankly. Save that money and do something else with it. As we wrap up on cataracts, I'll just say for people who don't have them, if they're wondering what vision is like, just go study a Monet painting. <laughs> So let's move to macular degeneration and explore that a little bit. Yeah, sure. So the full name of it is called age-related macular degeneration. And as the name implies, it's definitely associated with age. Uh, this is one that's a little trickier. We don't quite understand 
why some people get it and why others don't. There's, there is a genetic component that goes along with it. If your family member, your parents or sibling has it, your risk is a little higher, but we don't know the genetics cleanly. There's probably some environmental factors that go along with it. Smoking seems to be a risk factor for people developing macular degeneration. So certainly if you're worried about that and have a family history. That's another motivation to quit smoking. But this is a disease that's very different than cataract. So cataract is a disease of the lens of the eye. This is a disease of the macula, which is a part of the retina. Retinal tissue is very delicate, uh, important tissue with important cells that are responsible for taking the light input that hits it and translating that into a signal that goes to the brain to give you vision. In many cases, it's irreparable. And that's unfortunately the problem with macular degeneration. Time goes on for certain people the cells in their macula begin to break down. We don't know why. The macula, unfortunately, happens to be responsible for your most central vision. So if you're looking at me at your computer screen and you see my face, that's the portion of vision that's affected by macular degeneration. The side stuff isn't so affected. You still actually have very good peripheral vision. But the central stuff, which is what we look at, that's what we, you know, that's really what we use our vision for, becomes affected. It exists on a spectrum from very mild to quite severe, and it can progress along that spectrum from mild to severe. There is unfortunately no reversing macular degeneration. We don't have any way to make it better after it's caused some damage. There's no way to prevent it. There is a way to slow down the rate of progression, and that's by taking a specific multivitamin that in studies have been shown to slow down the rate of progression of macular degeneration, specifically the most common form, the dry form. So it's a tough disease. This is a tough one for folks to have, especially when it gets along those more severe end of the spectrum because it leaves you with permanently impaired vision. Well, back in the day, and I was in resident, there were some pretty aggressive and radical surgeries that were performed at a few medical centers around the nation to try to help with some things. I frankly don't know if those are done anymore. I haven't heard about those macular translocation surgeries. And so I don't think there really is any feasible surgical options here. And it's a tough one to, to have. While we're on the back of the eye, on the retina, and I know you're a corneal, which is the front, and there are retina specialists, but retinitis pigmentosa. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So that's often a genetic condition. It's the same part of the eye, the retina that's very different than macular degeneration. So retinitis pigmentosa is a condition that's congenital that often presents in younger years, though it can present any time really, but often young adults, sometimes even teenagers, but young adults are often the population in which this develops where you initially have good vision, but then the retinal cells in general start to degenerate. And your level of vision often in the periphery becomes very, very affected as well as your central vision. And this one, there really is no cure for at all. There's no multivitamin that's shown to prevent or reverse. UV exposure seems to accelerate it. So for these patients, it's very important to wear UV protecting glasses. There's some thought maybe vitamin E, certain vitamins may help a little bit. So a retina specialist may recommend supplementation with certain vitamins to help somebody slow down the rate of progression. But this is one that can be a very difficult progressive condition at a fairly young age that leaves one permanently blind. And it's at this point irreversible. Working on genomic, I mean, it's outside of your area, but it seems like it'd be. There are a lot of interesting things looked at for RP for the kind for, so our retinitis pigmentosa is caused by a whole slew of genes. 
And I think that for some subset for which there's a gene that's been identified as the problem gene, they are looking at different sort of some of those gene splicing therapies that can help inject those into the eye and see if that can help. But it's pretty exciting stuff. And as far as I know, there aren't human trials right now, but animal trials and models are being done, especially at the University of Iowa. There's a guy who's pretty active with this stuff. But that's certainly something promising in the future. It doesn't apply, like I said, to all patients with RP, but for those who maybe fall into the category of a well-defined genetic defect, that may be a potential in the future for that. And then moving to another very common eye disorder, glaucoma. So glaucoma is another super common one, also age-related, like we said. Glaucoma is a different part of the eye that gets damaged. This end part of the eye that gets damaged in this condition is the optic nerve. So the optic nerve is the part of the eyeball that connects. It's like the cable that connects the eye and all that tissue, the retina tissue, all that. It's a connection to the brain. It sends all those signals to the back of the brain and the occipital lobe where it gets interpreted and you're able to perceive vision. And so glaucoma is a result uh, or results in damage of the optic nerve. It's one where it's almost, I tell patients when we get into deeper discussions, glaucoma is actually a very generic term. It's almost like the term cancer. Cancer is really like 150 diseases, right? You can have, and they act differently. Brain cancer is super different than testicular cancer, super different than lymphoma. They're all very different, but they're all cancers. Glaucoma is similar. Glaucoma is a generic term that really describes probably 20 different types of processes that all result in damage to the optic nerve, but there's a whole different set of glaucomas that can cause that. The most common is called primary open angle glaucoma. That probably comprises 80% or more of people who have glaucoma. And this is one where for reasons that we don't understand, the regulatory systems in the eye that regulate how much the eye should be pressurized, which is it's not pressurized by air, obviously, but there's fluid in the eye. It's like a water balloon. You can pump it up with more water, you can let the water out, and the pressure on the balloon will change depending on the volume of water. There are mechanisms in the eye parts of the eye that create fluid and the parts of the eye that drain it. And that balance of the creation of fluid and the draining of the fluid results in a pressure inside the eye. And for people with primary open angle glaucoma, that is dysregulated and the eye pressure is all elevated. So either there's too much production of fluid or there's poor drainage of fluid or both. And that results in high eye pressure. And that high eye pressure seems to be particularly problematic for this optic nerve. And so the optic nerve becomes damaged and your vision is impaired. Glaucoma is a tough disease where once damage happens, it's also irreversible. Optic nerves are, after all, nerve tissue, central nervous tissue. We don't really know how to fix very well. When someone has stroke or other damage to those kinds of tissues, we're not good at being able to repair that stuff yet. It doesn't affect your central vision, like macula, the generation stuff. It affects your peripheral vision. And so glaucoma doesn't cause blurry central vision, but at the end stages of glaucoma, I have tunnel vision, what we call. So you can see pretty well if I have patients who have severe glaucoma, they can read the smallest letters, but they can't see five degrees to the right or left. And it's still very impairing and it can be very, very problematic for them. And in fact, that's one of the problems with glaucoma. Early on, it's completely asymptomatic. With macular degeneration, you get blurry vision and distorted vision and it'll prompt you to go get checked. Glaucoma, if you're looking straight ahead and you can see everything you need to see and your side vision has a few little gray spots or deficits, it's very difficult to notice that and to ascertain that. And so this is a good disease that occasionally we see presenting for the first time with quite serious glaucoma damage already done because of the 
asymptomatic nature of those symptoms early on. And that's a problem because of the irreversible nature of it. Once this disease has caused damage, we cannot get it back. So glaucoma is a disease of prevention. The only way that we help with glaucoma is preventing further or any vision loss. So all the mechanisms and treatments and eye drops and surgeries aimed at helping glaucoma never reverse it, never improve vision, but slow down or prevent worsening of vision. And so that's an important one that would be important to catch early and get on treatment early before we start to see a progression of this kind of problem in the eye. And eye pressures are measured during routine eye exam visits. Exactly. So this is one where that routine eye exam would pick that up most generally. And then we also not only check the eye pressure, but also look at that optic nerve. It's one of the parts that we can visualize when we look at the eye and see if it shows signs of stress or damage. And treatment, you said, are medications and surgery or both? Exactly. Depending on the severity, start off with drops first. There are some lasers that are fairly non-invasive that could be used early on. And then end. more advanced cases often require eye surgery to help with prevention of worsening. There are options that are effective. And you're able to differentiate between the open angle and the closed angle type. I know there are certain medications that we use for patients that were contraindicated for closed angle, but it was so rare. But we'd always check with, ask the patient, make sure you check with your eye doc and uh, no, it doesn't affect you. That's right. There are certain medications that can close an angle that's at risk. And so that open angle, closed angle, what we're talking about, it, the angle is a part of the eye that drains the fluid. That's the natural drain. So open angle means that it's open, the drain is open, it's just not functioning very well. Closed angle refers to a condition where the drain is, is blocked off. So eye pressure is gonna go high because fluid is being made and it's got nowhere to drain. And so many eyes fall into this sort of at-risk anatomy where they look like their angle could close, but it's not. And so there's a slew of medicines that have been shown in certain patients to push them over the edge, so to speak, and to, to close that angle off and induce a closed angle glaucoma situation. So you're right, for patients who, and it's better to just ask and have them check and we'll look and be like, nope, your angles are fine. You'll be fine with that medicine. Excellent. Yeah. And it just, you know, it is a just communication. Right. Right, right. So other things that seem to really annoy patients floaters. What are floaters? Absolutely. Yeah. Good question. That's one of the most common reasons people come in. So the back of the eye behind the lens is filled with this substance called vitreous. This vitreous substance is normally clear and translucent, doesn't have a color. It's a little thicker though. It's almost like a gelatinous kind of jello, jello consistency. It's not a liquid like, you know, saline or, or water. And so this gelatinous Clear substance just fills the eye, doesn't really have tons of functions. There's probably some function developmentally that I don't know, but it just fills the eye. And over time, that's how it is in our younger years, this nice translucent gelatinous substance. As we get older, again, this is one that often comes on with age, and there are certain eyes that are more at risk of this, particularly nearsighted eyes, particularly have a bigger problem with floaters. But over time, that gelatinous vitreous changes its gelatin nature. It changes its texture. It becomes a little more liquefied. And in that liquefication, opaque strands, webs, spots that can develop. So all of a sudden, in this vitreous jelly, you've got these little cloudy patches that are back there, little teeny things. But if they're right in front of your retina or a couple of millimeters in front of your retina, they cast this shadow that looks like there's flies or spots or, or nets or gnats or whatever. 
and they can float around in your vision that you, you know, when you move your eye to the right, the little cloudy patch just slowly drifts over in that direction. And when you move it the other way, it comes back the other way. That is the cause of floaters in probably 95% of the cases. Those are super annoying. They are often self-limited. So they come on, they cause symptoms for a period of time. And that often can meet six months, nine months, a year, but they often go away. They start either to, they liquefy completely and they're physically gone or more often than not, your brain is very good at adapting to that. And so a year later, someone comes in and said they had floaters. How's the floater? And they say, oh, it's gone, doc. And I look and I still see the opacity there, but their brain has done a great job of helping them ignore it. In the minority of cases, that 5% case of floater, especially ones that come on quite suddenly, they're often associated with not just a big floater, but a flash of lights when they start. It's kind of like there's a paparazzi going on in the side of your visual field, flashes going all over the place. And certainly if it's associated with any blurry vision or often people will say, oh, my upper field, I can't see very well, but I'm good centrally. That floater is not caused by a simple jelly vitreous issue, but often by retinal damage, retinal tears, and maybe the early onset of a retinal detachment can cause that symptom. And so that's much more serious. That can be a source of permanent vision problems if not addressed. That is requires surgery always, whether laser surgery or sometimes in an operating room surgery. And so we counsel patients, if you have a new floater that comes on suddenly, you should get checked out especially if it has any of those other symptoms, flashing lights, any blurry vision, any field of vision cuts, that sort of a thing. That needs to be looked at promptly because that needs to be urgently dealt with before causing more serious damage. Can trauma induce a floater? Yeah, trauma can cause either of those types of causes of floater. It can cause retinal tears or detachments, and very commonly it can induce some changes in this vitreous jelly that will cause a new floater to develop. Absolutely. And anything that hastens the change in the density of that fluid, any physical issues somebody might encounter? No, not the trauma is a good example of that. Having a very long eyeball, very nearsighted folks, you'll often have floaters at a younger age. There are some treatments out there for floaters, though most retina folks that I know don't particularly love them. There are some injections and sometimes lasers that people try, but most retina specialists that I work with say they avoid those because of potential side effects of an otherwise annoying but benign condition. And then a lot of people have either dry eye or the opposite, excessive tearing when they come to see you. Yeah. Boy, that's a common one here in where I practice in the desert. At the root cause, I'll tell you, Richard, that's almost the same thing. So what I mean by that is that the ocular surface is actually a pretty complicated part of the eyeball. You got your cornea and your conjunctiva, and it needs to be covered by a nice tear film. And that tear film is, is also pretty complex in and of itself. And inadequate tear film leads to dryness, which classically makes your eye feel gritty and sandy. Maybe like you got an eyelash stuck in there. It can make the eyes very red. It can make you burn. That can cause fluctuating vision. In fact, one of the most common causes of fluctuating vision is a poor tear film and dry eye. One of the other symptoms and very common symptoms of this is that the eye gets dry, has a bad tear film and says, hey, let's make more tears. And the easiest component of the eye to make tears is the lacrimal gland, which makes the water component of a tear. The water is not very viscous and it runs right out of the eye. So running, tearing eyes are often a sign of dry eye or inadequate tear film. 
just the eyes don't have a good, they're not viscous enough to stick to the surface. They're just running out of the eye. If your hands are dry, think about it. We're not gonna put water on there to moisturize. You gotta get lotions and things that have oils that absorb and give you a nice moisturization, same on the eye. And so that dry eye and wet eye are almost always dry eye. <laughs> and so lubricating the eye, lubricating the eye, lubricating the eye, you can use those drops four or five times a day to start. And after a few weeks, it's not as simple as, well, my eye was dry, I put in a drop, it should have fixed the problem. No, this is often an accumulation of many weeks of poor tear film, and it takes many weeks for it to settle back down. So you give it several weeks, a month or two of giving yourself over-the-counter tear drops, and in the large majority of cases, it helps quite a bit. There are some prescription eye drops that have been shown to help produce a better tear film. Those ones you'd have to use regularly, like a medicine, not as needed, like the over-the-counter option. And then there are tear duct plugs that people you may hear about that you can pop in and help to prevent the drainage of the tears you do produce. So if you don't make a lot of tears, well, let's stop them from leaving the eye. We put in a little tear duct plug that keeps the tears on the surface of the eye longer. Now, the wet eye problem is usually dry eye, but in some instances, it's not. That drainage pathway that normally should drain your tears out of the eye can sometimes have a blockage especially if it's one eye. If you've got one eye that's wet all the time and the other eye that's not, that's a sign that maybe there's a blockage the, and there's some things that can be done with that to correct it. But if both eyes are wet, it's usually from dry eye. Should people with the experience new onset of either itchy eye or tearing come in and get checked just to make sure everything's okay? I'd say is symptom-driven. It's usually not anything more concerning or dangerous. But certainly if you can't control it with over-the-counter stuff, if it's still causing problems and symptoms, even when you're using drops, even if you're using drops two times a day, three times a day, and you're still having quite a bit of discomfort, absolutely, you should come in to see about those other options and see if there's other things that could be helpful for you. And when we talk to the ENT docs, they don't like things being put in the ear. Any concern about rubbing eyes? Yeah, that's a really good question. And so... Rubbing for a little itch is probably okay, but there are some people who, and there's a particular condition of the eye that people particularly feel very, very relieved when they dig in there and really itch around in there. And that's not good. <laughs> it increases the pressure inside the eye. It can cause distortion for this particular condition of the cornea that is not a great thing to have happen. And so really digging in there is not a great idea, no. And then... We have, of course, cancers of the eye and tumors. I want to just briefly touch on those. I'm sure there are many. Yeah, there are a lot of those. Luckily, they're very rare. We split them kind of briefly into two categories, surface, ocular surface tumors, and then intraocular tumors. Ocular surface tumors act a lot like skin cancers, very analogous. In fact, squamous cell cancer of the eye is the most common kinds of ocular surface tumor, and it's dealt with in much the same way as skin cancer which is to say we can remove it, and it's often curative. There's a chance of recurrence. We can't do most surgery on the eye like dermatologists can do on the skin, but we take very large margins of these tumors off of the eye and try to do some things that would prevent the chance of any cancerous cells being left behind and therefore a chance of recurrence. But they're often curative. Now, intraocular tumors are even more rare than that, but they can sometimes be more problematic intraocular tumor as a choroidal melanoma. And this is luckily not terribly common, but it's a melanoma, just like any other melanoma it can be a very, very big problem. Oftentimes with choroidal melanomas, you don't see it. Uh, they're often kind of caught incidentally, or if they're big enough, they can certainly cause symptoms. 
And that requires quite an invasive set of treatments from a specialist that are often few and far between. Patients who have these need to travel sometimes to big academic centers where they have specialists who can deal with those sorts of things. Looking at some medical conditions that on an eye exam you might pick up, just enlighten everybody about what an ophthalmologist or optometrist might see doing an eye yeah, exam. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. It's certainly true that for a lot of systemic conditions, they can have eye manifestations. And it is true that sometimes you can be diagnosed with that systemic condition based on an eye exam. That's the rarity. Most of the patients come in with a systemic condition already diagnosed. Marfan syndrome patient comes in and their lenses are a little bit out of place. They've got ectopia lentis and it's decentered lenses. The most common systemic condition that affects the eyes is, of course, diabetes. Just thick retinopathy is the primary way that it affects the eyes. And that's a very common thing that we deal with as well, actually. Probably one of the most common retinal pathologies the retina specialist sees is diabetic retinopathy. Uh, it affects, and we can often diagnose someone with diabetes or at least send them to their primary who would then do a workup and lead to that diagnosis if they haven't been in, in a while. But diabetic retinopathy can cause a spectrum of symptoms from very mild to quite severe symptoms. And that's why someone who does have diabetes needs to get eye exams annually if there are no signs of diabetic damage in the eye. And if there is, often they're referred to a retinal specialist and their treatments to try to prevent the potential damages that can be done with uh, diabetic damage in the eye. Those are some of the main things. There are certain medications that can be taken that can cause eye manifestations and things like that. Um, one of the ones that is an interesting one because it just causes a finding that has no clinical significance whatsoever is amiodarone used for arrhythmias. And it can cause a little very distinct pigmentation on the cornea that is an ophthalmologist can sound pretty smart. And, oh, you're on amiodarone, huh? <laughs> Even though they've given you the list, if you haven't looked, you could often pick up on that. And thyroid disease? Thyroid eye disease is a very common complication of thyroid disease for sure. And that can cause also a spectrum of symptoms, most commonly dry eye. So annoying, but nothing too serious to more aggressive kinds of thyroid eye disease, grave disease. You can have your eye muscles become inflamed, causing them to be disjointed so that you have double vision. That happens very commonly with thyroid eye disease. In the very severe cases, you have so much inflammation of those eye muscles that you can cause damage to the optic nerve and cause real permanent vision issues. And so someone who has very aggressive or serious Graves disease needs to see not just an ophthalmologist, but an oculoplastics specialist, a subtype of ophthalmologist who can help to prevent vision loss. There are uh, many other things we could go through, but time is limited. <laughs> I know. I just looked at the time too, man. I didn't realize how it's gone by so quickly. And you're right. There's a whole slew. Those are the list you had there was certainly the most common stuff, some of the biggest things that bring people in to see ophthalmologists. And so I think you covered the important stuff. A great review. I always like to give listeners opportunity to find further information. Is there any place that you would send people as a resource that's a very legitimate and good resource for the population? Good question. The main thing I look for for general patient population is the American Academy of Ophthalmology's website. So aao.org. That's great. It's got patient resources where you can get printouts on all the common stuff and some of the uncommon stuff too. If you're more of a technical person or maybe a medical background and want to learn a little more in detail, there's a subtype of Wikipedia subpage called iWiki, which is great. It's got a good summary. It's almost like an up-to-date type resource for eye stuff. 
of a whole slew of conditions and more details to the pathology and the treatment options and things like that. So that's iwiki.org is a good one too. But the American Academy of Ophthalmology is very reliable. Excellent. Now I'll ask you one last question and we'll wrap up. But since it is men's health and sildenafil, Viagra, and a eye condition that has been associated with diabetes and a lot of the conditions that cause erectile dysfunction, but there is a warning and some concern. Yeah. So the problem with the eyes for this, for Viagra, is that it's this vasodilator, which is how it works, how it does. But in some very rare instances, and I've seen a few patients who have had this problem, they can take that medication and then over the ensuing, usually it's within 12 or 24 hours, they develop an optic neuropathy, usually unilateral, sometimes bilateral. And it's thought to be because of vasodilation leading to insufficiency, you know, vascular, not enough vascular flow to the optic nerve. It can cause a optic neuropathy, which can be a serious problem, it causes irreversible vision loss. And it's difficult to predict. It's quite rare, super rare. You know, I think that they knew this going in after the trials that it's rare enough that's still on the market, obviously. And it's, you can't really predict exactly who's going to have this potential effect from this medication, but it is a potential risk of this one. And it's one that we rarely see, but we do see. So just the blue hue that people get doesn't mean that they're having a problem. And so this is really rare. But if you do have significant visual changes, obviously stop using the medicine, get to your eye doctor. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time. This has been absolutely wonderful. Dr. Brian Alder, you are a wealth of information. I'm sure your patients are in love with you. And thank you. Oh, well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And hopefully that was somewhat helpful and not too boring. <laughs> no, it's great. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Rich. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, PhD. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.